Welcome, fellow traveller, to the Tent Talks podcast, where we fight bad ideas with good ideas. Join Dr. Stephen Backhouse and friends as we pursue the renewing of our theological, social and political imagination. Hello, Stephen here. Welcome to the Tent Talks podcast. Our current series is on love. I've learnt over the last few years, if I needed learning it, that this is a hard and cruel world. But one of the things I've really noticed is how personal views of power, how personal attempts to hold on to power, lead to really hard and cruel institutions. We don't know how to love. Rather than look at all the bad things that we do over and over again to each other in organized and personal ways, I wanted to look at how to love. How can we find ways to make our power better for others? How can we find ways to personally pay attention to our neighbor, to consider others better than ourselves, to love our enemies? To do any of these things that the world desperately needs, we have to learn how to love. My name is Tanasha LeRae, and I'm a poet, a pastor, a filmmaker, storyteller, and a lover of people. Tanasha, thank you so much for agreeing to spend your time with me. I really appreciate it. I'm going to ask you, like I said, a deceptively simple question to start. What is love? My definition of love is that it's a force. I think about love as both an energy that you can possess and participate with, that you can receive, that you can give, that whittles you down um, and builds you up. I think about love when I think about my (laughs) great-grandmother and how she would bring us in and make us plump and fat off of all of her (laughs) great cooking. (laughs) And I think about love when my parents would discipline us because they knew that was protection and it needed to shape us. I think love is the most transformative force that exists on the planet that could change the hearts of clan members, like with this gentleman named Daryl Davis, who would befriend clan members and get to know who they are. And over the course of time, many of them would leave the Ku Klux Klan and give them, or excuse me, give him their regalia. Only love could do that. You know, I, I think of love as something that even the kids could kiss on your cheek, but that also leaders over full countries could administer through their kind words. Um, You know, love to me, it's a force. And then if I were to go, you know, super Christian with it, love's a person. It is the Trinity, the community of the Trinity, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. It's like this divine dance. Love is the thread that connects everything. You know, scripture talks about Jesus being in all through all. And I think about love being in all, through all. It's the the thing that weaves this tapestry together, that weaves us all together. Um, But love is activated through choice. So it's not a force that forces itself on you. It invites you. It woos you. Um, And it's always there, but it does require us to believe in it and to choose it. So that's my (laughs) poetic definition of love. (laughs) 
you you mentioned really at the beginning you said it whittles you down and it builds you up how does love whittle someone down what how does it break people down or carve them up a bit yeah you know i think of like when people are whittled down by love it's that pursuit that constant pursuit of them uh like if we were to go to a good old rom-com and it's that that boy that sees that girl and he just keeps bringing her flowers and he just keeps bringing her flowers or or when i think about even just people in my own life that surly angry grandfather who's had so much pain in his life but here comes the three-year-old who walks up to him every single time you know just with that sweet charming look and this innocence of this this force of love inside this little child that doesn't know pain like that yet. And love just chips away at all of those particular parts of them that sees them and that brings them into belonging. Um, I think of love whittling us down in that way. It knows what we need and it never relents. Like it keeps going and going and going. Okay. So how does it build you up? How, you said the opposite is it whittles down, but it also can build you up. And how yeah. does love build to someone up? I think love builds us up through belief. You know, when you love someone or when you love a community or when you love an idea, when you believe in people and you use the force of love and belief together, uh, it can't leave people the same. And so it will edify you. It'll encourage you. It will physically build you up inside your own morale and your own, um, how your own infrastructure of love is towards yourself or towards other people. I think about like, I, I'll probably talk a lot about Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Cause he is my favorite. I call him my mentor from the cloud of witnesses. <laughs> his love and his heart for uh, the United States of America built the country up. It didn't always look like him saying, America, you're amazing. But it was a force that said, America, you can be amazing. You can be great. There's a version of you that exists in the future that you don't look like right now. And, um, and I'm not going to beat you up right now. I'm going to love you right now. And so that means I'm going to tell you the truth. I'm going to hold you accountable. I'm going to speak life into you. I'm going to participate with how you grow and develop as a society. I'm going to give my best ideas and I'm going to give you the sweat off my back and the blood that might even come from the wounds when somebody stabs me in the side. I'm going to give you my all to build you up, to be the version of yourself that you can be. And criticism doesn't do that. You know, critique that is non-constructive doesn't do that. Criticism punishes you. It holds you to a standard inside somebody else's ideals that says, if you are not my version of perfection, then you are not worthy of love. But love says you're always worthy of love. You don't have to actually be some version of yourself to be worthy of that love. I will give you love even in your current state. And then I will love you into a better state. And, and that's how love can build up um, because Love is the force in which we can all participate with right now, not when we see some future version. And that's even speaking to ourselves. You know, sometimes we we turn that punishment towards ourselves like, oh, I, when I achieve this thing, then I can be worthy of love. Or when I finally get over this habit or addiction, then I can be worthy of love. And it's actually the love that will transform you into the better version of yourself. So you need the love now in order to become this version in your head you're thinking of and, and to recognize that love is ours and it's it's now i mean you mentioned dr king can you tell us a bit about the beloved community so what does that phrase what does the beloved community mean to you 
Well, the beloved community um, to me, that phrase is, it's such a sacred phrase. It's some people criticize it as a utopian phrase. Like it's this, this idea of utopia that people could never really aspire to. Um, but it, it comes from people that were a part of um, reconciliation organizations in the early 1900s. And um, it became popularized by Dr. King as the very picture of, of what society could be formed to look like through nonviolent philosophy, through nonviolent practices, nonviolent activism. Um, Dr. King himself was against these three evils, poverty, racism, and violence or militarism. He specified the violence. And in this beloved community, it's, it's this picture of every single person belonging as a communal part of this tapestry of humanity, of brotherhood, whether it be right down your neighborhood or globally, so a global brotherhood. But the beloved community is protected through our fighting for one another. It's not some utopia that's like it's going to be perfect, but it is a radical belonging to one another that says we are going to make sure we are taking care of one another with, with radical fighting against poverty, um, that you are going to be honored and you are going to be um, given your human dignity through radical fighting of discrimination and racism, as well as uh, you'll be protected and so radical fighting against violence. But the, the way the fight happens for the creation of the beloved community is through nonviolence. And so instead of picking up a sword, you actually posture your heart and your even your body sometimes to take the blows. And when I think of it, I think of it as being something that instead of allows, instead of something that allows the um, violence to continue to ricochet throughout the universe, we actually become the ones who absorb it. And so it stops with us. At some place, the violence must end. Otherwise, it's just going to have a domino effect and keep going and keep going and keep going. But if I'm thinking about redemption, a redeemed society, a version of existence that is beyond what I'm seeing right now, at some point, I can't do an eye for an eye. I'm, I'm going to have to absorb it. And, um, and so that beloved community, to me, it's, it's a radical belonging to one another. And I feel like even right now, there is a bit of a reformation of belonging where people are looking at how we do teams in society, you know, in the United States, Republican versus Democrat, liberal versus conservative, you know, Trump 2024 versus Black Lives Matter and forgetting that in that person on the other side of my fence is a spirit, you know, and is a human that has dignity that I should uphold. I don't know. It makes me think about um, Acts 2.42 and the word fellowship and in the Greek that's koinonia, you know, and where literally every need is met in that type of community. But I also think of the masculine Greek term there, not just the feminine, but koinonos, meaning belonging as a mutual joint participant. And so the beloved community is something that we can all participate in. It is a place to belong as a participant um, that you participate in the creation of it, in the protection of it, and in the abundance of it. So it's not utopia to me, it's, it's hard work, but, uh, and it's not just some ideal that can't be reached. It's something that if we put our, our hearts towards and our love towards, we can see formed even in our, in our day. I mean, can you, I know for a fact that you have chosen to live in two areas of America that aren't known for their beloved community ideals. So you've lived in some sort of deeply angry, <laughs> conservative areas of, of northern california you've lived in you live now in this in the american south 
place is not known for being uh, passionately against racism and militarism and uh, and poverty. How do you carry yourself when you're in these places as a member of the beloved community? How does that work when the utopian ideal becomes something that's right on the ground with your actual neighbors? Ooh, <laughs> how do I carry myself when I when I have lived in these highly charged areas that actually reject a lot of the ideals of the beloved community? You know, I, I actually have to credit my parents. Uh, they are such phenomenal human beings who I don't even think they realized what they were doing when they were raising me and my two brothers. But when I was a child, my mom, she she goes on to tell the story now um, of how she experienced God in that time. She felt arrested by God to make sure that we knew where we came from. And me being an African-American, being a descendant of the enslaved, it's hard to find where I came from. Um, we've done a lot of genealogy now and, and we can't make our way back to, to the, the African coasts to find what tribes we came from. But she made sure that we at least knew our American story. And she would take us on these field trips, vacations is what she called them. Uh, what I've learned or come to find that they actually were, were pilgrimages. Um, we were returning to the land of the, the places of our ancestors and how they fought for freedom and, and how they endured extreme hardship. And while we were on these trips, I would see so many things. I would be up close and personal with plantations and the history of the, the owners there. And I would see locations where underground railroad sites were, where people were hidden, um, trying to get to freedom and I'd see where Frederick Douglass would give his great speeches and try to awaken the conscience of white America. I would learn about the abolitionist movement. I would find places to lay my body down on where like Dr. King actually walked and experienced extreme hardship and brutality and the Selma Bridge and so many things. But my dad, him being a minister and us being a very like devout family following Jesus, uh, the conversation around race and bigotry and pain and brutality and murder and rape and all of those things in the South against people that look like me. Because when I'm telling you, we were learning it, me and my brothers were angry. We were just angry because you, you, what do you do with all that pain in a little 12 year old body? You know, you, it just turns to flame. And my dad would sit us down and we'd have a conversation about mercy. And we'd have a conversation about the cross. And we'd have a conversation about the, the full picture of reconciliation and everything being redeemed and God's plan to reconcile all things to himself. And we were always presented with the choice, you know, if you hold on to unforgiveness, will you be forgiven? <laughs> and, and, and what does radical love look like? And as I've grown older and studied a lot more Dr. King stuff and, and studied a lot more of the civil rights movement as well and what actually brought change, there's a saying that we have in the hood, we would say like, show me the receipts. And I would see the places where there were receipts for massive change that would bring people back together were places where, where from the organizations that adhere to the principles of nonviolence. And the six principles of nonviolence, I'm not going to go through every single one of them, but one that, that really struck me and, and sits with me is that we don't fight people, we fight evil. It's one of the main principles. We don't fight people, we fight evil. And it allowed me to look at all of these people that carried this, these 
constructs within them that they had been passed down, that they had been handed from their either their pain or their story or their grandparents, parents, you know, all of that. Um, I would recognize like there we, we all at some level have puppet strings tied to evil. But this is a human being in front of me. And then I'm a storyteller. So uh, I love getting into story. I love getting into character. And, and when I study acting, uh, we learn very quickly there are no villains. But there are people that have incredible pain that make bad decisions. So it was hard for me also to see people as villains when I've been trained as a storyteller to not see people as villains, to see people as complex. So then I would, I would literally, um, I have this phrase, like we have to enter the story in order to heal the story. And most times in America, we're always trying to stay away from the story, like distance ourselves, like uh, we can't get up close because that's going to be, it's going to have negative commentary about me. And I'm like, no, 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 no. You get to be the healer of the story if you would enter into it. And I would have to not only encourage people to enter into the American story as it pertains to racism against the African-American, I had to tell myself, wait, Tanasha, enter into their story. And so I would enter into the story of the hyper conservative individual that told me there's no racism today. <laughs> and I'm like, how could they even get there? And then I would just use my imagination. I would see them sitting in some mountain town around only one black person. And of course, in their world, <laughs> you know, for those that know, you know, <laughs> in their worldview, of course, there's no racism because there was only one black person and they were far away from institutionalized systems that actually kept entire communities down that created the ghettos of Chicago, that created the slums in Louisiana, that, that, that still have red lines drawn in specific areas that cities have yet to correct. Um, and, and many of them have not known the full American story. They've only known their narrow experience. And once I understood that, I could have empathy. I could have empathy. I could go, oh, no wonder you see it in this particular way. Uh, you don't know very much, or you haven't experienced much, or you haven't been in proximity to somebody that has had pain in this particular area. And that, that helped me get out of my own self-righteousness and just into the, the work of humanity, um, because humans are extremely complex. And, and then by adhering to the six principles of nonviolence, it, it was my way of doing the spiritual work, because it's it's very like very easy. We can become the people that operate in the same spirit just for a different cause. You know, I can see them as bigoted and evil and and hard of heart and and impossible to deal with, but it's for their cause. Now I can be operating in the same spirit for my cause and be no better. And I'm like, I don't want that energy. I want something that goes above the noise. I want something that surpasses all of that and that pulls everybody into a very different experience. I want, I want that transformative love, which means love is going to have to show up even when it's not easy. It, of course, it's easy to love people when they're being nice to you, when they're marching alongside you in a Black Lives Matter rally, when, when they're believing the same things that you believe. But love, like true love, is when you still extend it towards someone that you feel doesn't deserve it. And, and I had to exercise that. I had to practice that. I had to put my money where my mouth was. And, and the six principles of nonviolence, it actually reveals to us, it's, it's not just an external nonviolence where I don't hit back if somebody hits me. It's an internal work of nonviolence that I make sure that nothing in me is agreeing with a violent thought, a violent emotion, a violent belief towards another person outside of me. Because whatever's inside of me is what's going to manifest outside of me. And so it's, it's a deeply internal spiritual work. And I've committed 
myself to that. <laughs> and and I live in South Carolina now and the history of this area is painful. You know, the birthplace of the Confederacy and the first place that the Civil War, first battle the Civil War was fought here and the most enslaved Africans were brought in through the Charleston, South Carolina port more than any other port in the United States. And, and there's still a lack of... Uh, wanting to look at it. I went to go see the movie Till the other day about Emmett Till and Mamie Till, his mother, who, who um, just fought for equality after his, after his death. And when we were going to see the movie, a, a group of friends and I, the theater was empty. And I'm like, I'm not surprised as well as saddened at the same time. I was kind of excited. I was like, we get the theater to ourselves. But then I was like, wait, this is a picture of, of South Carolina still unwilling to look, still unwilling to face it. And what does love look like when people aren't willing to look? You know, um, I think love in those moments finds what the needs are and meets the needs. And some people need um, a kind invitation, not a ferocious slap upside the back of their head to make them see truth. Same way Jesus gives us kind invitations to pull us away from our mess. We have quite a, I'm going to edit myself out of here, but, um, you know, my, my audience is largely, you know, you can assume some relationship to Christianity, but a lot of them have been morally repulsed by Christianity, you know, so they, they love Jesus, they like Jesus, but they do not see Jesus in most noisy expressions of Christianity. They see, uh, especially white charismatic or white evangelical kind of stuff. So they're, my audience is like they're engaged, but they're depressed. They 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 feel burnt out. How do how do uh, good people of goodwill who want to be engaged but who are just burnt out and depressed? How can they love? How can they start to learn to love? Do you have any advice? Just as we go into the last ten minutes or so, do you have any anything to say to people who are engaged but burnt out and want to learn to love again? When I think about the people that are burnt out and, but they're still wanting to stay engaged and learn to love again. I put my life coach hat on. I'm a life coach. So <laughs> I'm just like, I, I understand the pain. I, I mean, I'm to be honest, if I'm like 100% honest, I'm still healing um, and still catching my wind after experiencing ferocious amounts of white evangelicalism that did not look like Jesus, did not feel like Jesus uh, and did not want to be accountable to Jesus. I feel like the first thing we got to do is, is like slow down because a lot of us are wanting to fix the world. There's something that God told me one day. He said, Tanasha, I actually don't want you to change the world. I need you to give me that. It's become an idol. And I said, what? I literally thought I was talking to Satan himself. I'm like, that's what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to change the world. But my Western upbringing had I don't know, seasoned me to believe that conquering colonialism is, is the way of the gospel. And it's not, no matter what cause you have, it's not, that's not the way. The way is yeast. The way is radical love. The way is belonging. And, and so I, I had to let that go. And he said, I want you to love the world, not change the world. And then I could just hear all kinds of John three sixteen echoing in that. And I recognized that I had been so trained in control and speed and high work and high effort. Um, I just was like, I don't want it anymore. 
And what ended up becoming very attractive to me was the contemplative sides of the faith to actually be still and know that he is God. And in that place, instead of needing the white evangelicalism space to become changed in order for me to feel whole again, I just went and got whole again because love is there for me, no matter if they change or not. And, and I recognize me wanting to control that outcome kept me away from love. And I relinquished control and I just went and got my feast of love and just sitting and being with God and drinking in his presence. And, and I'm not going to lie. I had to read a lot of different books. I read this book called uh, Decolonizing Evangelicalism. That book helped me, you know, <laughs> um, I, I've been reading a book called The Jesus Tribe, how to radically be there um, as a Christian and, and, and wielding the name of Jesus, not as a sword, but um as the one who is your master and you're an apprentice of and um, in a day of an empire and and just knowing that there were there were ideologies out there that still aligned with what I was seeing in the red letters in scripture um, was encouraging to me and that connected with and combined with um, just letting love be a meal for myself first because you can't love your neighbor if you don't love yourself well and and I had to start there but then even in engaging in the work of love as it pertains to, to community, um, I would say don't do it alone. But to also watch out for like the, the people that are creating, I would say, environments of discord. And I had to pull myself out of this, even from people that I agreed with. And it's just watching the energy. Does the energy actually create a new reality or is it keeping me critiquing the current one? And not just not like constructive criticism, but the kind that makes me the judge and makes them the one I'm accusing. I, I had to pull myself out of that kind of energy because it wasn't constructive. It wasn't building a new future. And I had to get myself around dreamers, people who were dreaming of a new reality. And I, I just hear Dr. King and that I have a dream, you know, that one day like you need to be around dreamers. And if because if you're only around critiquers, you're only going to feel the muck and the mire. And if you're around dreamers, you'll feel hope again. You'll feel possibility again. And if you're not able to dream yet, then that means that you still need healing. Because I believe the human soul is wired to dream. It's wired to hope. And if we hope, then we have faith. And, and, and that means that your soul is so depleted. You just need a fresh drink. Go and get your fresh drink. That's not, that's, that's not something that you have to wait until the outcomes have become something that you want to see. That's a drink you can have every single day. So that's what I would say to the weary and to the to those that are are you know distressed and when they look at everything going on it just feels impossible. Yeah, you can be loved and then love in return, right? But it's it's the other way. It's you be you be loved first and then you can be loved, right? Yeah, exactly. And what's so crazy or what I would even say super um eye-opening when you start receiving love, you start realizing just how imperfect you are. It's the great neutralizer. It, it fills me with so much humility and mercy that I go, wait, I'm no better than that person. <laughs> like I'm in need of the same mercy. I'm in need of the same grace. I'm in need of the same love. I actually can only love because I was first loved. And, and it's so humbling. And, and, um, but at the same, same time, so empowering. Because now if you can feel your cup filled, you have something to go give away.
Wow, thank you so much. This is I, this is perfect. It's exactly what I was hoping. I was like, <laughs> I've been you, you've been ticking away in the back of my mind for years since. since oh wow! Yeah, I'm so glad. <laughs> I'm um, so glad this worked out. This, this oh, is really, a great subject and. Yeah, it's it's just I was like you said, I was like, I'm tired of thinking about the bad all the time. It's just it's mm. destroying my soul. I need to think about the op- the opposite. You know, so. Yeah. Anyway, yeah, there's a saying who, who I don't know who says it. He who has the most hope has the most influence. Right. And that's the part within our hearts we have to protect is our hope. Yeah. Which is why I love Dr. King, because even though like brutally beaten, he still had this picture of a future. That was, no, I mean, it looked nowhere in sight, nowhere in sight, yeah. but there was something in him that hoped um, beyond, beyond the beatings. So, yeah. And he's got the receipts that <laughs> literally changed the U.S. Constitution three times in four years without war. Without oh my war. gosh. Without killing a single person. Without killing a single yeah. person. Yeah. Much blood was shed, but not from his hands. All right, friend. I, I'm going to let you go, but I thank you so much. And I, I really hope that our paths are going to cross again. Yeah, same here. Thanks for having me on. I feel very honored. Oh, it's a joy. Okay, go well. Bye. Thank you for listening. Thanks to David Backhouse for the theme tune and to Chris Marchand for editing and all the other music. This show only exists because of support from listeners like you. If you have found something we made to be good or useful, please consider becoming a patron at the Tent Talks Patreon page or leaving a good review on your chosen podcast platform. This really helps. For more information, visit www.tenttheology.com.